Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 28. We'll read the whole portion together. I'll make some comments as we're going along. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Notice Paul and Barnabas' response to this opposition. So, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and to stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Notice this contrast. Paul and Barnabas are led by the Spirit to either stay and speak boldly or to flee and to go to other cities. They don't just do the same thing. It is a reminder to us that we have to continuously discern what, when, where, and how the Lord wants us to do anything. Some situations we have to stand and be bold. Some situations you've got to run. But you better hear from the Lord. All right? In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. This reminds us, and it should remind you, of the healing of the lame man at the temple gate by when Peter and John went up to the temple. And the very similar kind of thing, that man that had never been able to walk since birth looked at them, they look at him, they say, stand up and walk, he jumps up. And you know, the, there's two miracles here, right? It's not just the fact that his lame legs are healed. He's never walked in his life. You know, think about it. When a baby starts to walk, a toddler starts to walk, it takes a while, it takes some, some learning. This, this man jumps up and starts to walk. And I thought, wow, that's a second miracle right there. Not just that the legs are strengthened, but he walks. He just starts to walk, right? And he's leaping and praising God and so on. And so a great miracle takes place. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them, to Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes. By the way, you've seen these references where people tear their clothes. And it's typically the Jewish response to blasphemy. When someone speaks sacrilegiously about God or the things of God, they would tear their clothes. When Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, 
And he says, and, and you know, it says that the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, they tore their clothes. What was the, what was the reason? They are associating what Jesus is saying they, with blasphemy. You are claiming to be God. This is blasphemy. They tear their clothes. Same thing that Paul and Barnabas are doing here. They tear their clothes to say, this is blasphemy. Don't speak like this because they, 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 run, they rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Notice how Paul and Barnabas are speaking about the true and living God. These are people, primarily Gentiles, who don't have the context about Yahweh, who don't know the true and living God. But he appeals to them in terms of something that they can understand. And he says, this is the God that I'm talking about who has made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's not Zeus or J Jupiter or Hermes or anybody else. It is the true and living God. In the past, he let the nations go on their way. And, but now he is showing kindness. He is showing you the true way, the way that you should go in. And so he's pleading with them. He's speaking to them and so on. Now, there's presumably some time that passes between verse 18 and verse 19, because in verse 19 it says, Then some Jews came from Antioch, which is about 110 miles away, and Iconium, which is about 20 miles away, and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Paul, Paul actually refers to this stoning in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. But you've got to realize, this is the same people who were about to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, saying the gods have come down in human form. But now, they're ready to kill them. They're, and in fact, they, they do. They stone Paul, drag him through the city or through the streets, throw him outside, supposing him to be dead. Right? So quickly that changes. It's very similar to what we saw with Jesus. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the people are hailing him as king. A week later they're saying, crucify him. So this is the thing that's happening here that the people have turned. They have been swayed. They have, been, they have turned from saying the gods to now saying crucify or stone him, kill him. And again, this is an incredible, remarkable miracle. Because you don't... You don't get stoned, dragged through the street, and left for dead if you're not in pretty bad shape, right? That, that's, that wasn't just like a glancing blow, and they thought he was dead, and he said, oh, no, nothing, no problem. No, he was, he was in a very bad shape. Now, I'm, I'm not saying right there that he was already dead. It's possible. Right? There are other scriptures that speak to the way that Paul was or how he was rescued and so on. In 2 Corinthians 11.25, he doesn't say specifically, I was dead and came back to life. He says, I was pelted with stones. 
But in any case, he was in a very bad shape. And the disciples come around him. They're not doing anything. They're not setting his bones. They're not giving him medicine. They just says they gathered around him and he got up. And he just got up and walked into the city. I don't know what the people who stoned him said when they saw him walking into the city. But it is a remarkable miracle that takes place here. It's as if he's coming back from the dead. That he just gets up and walks into the city. And then... After the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, the very cities that they had either been expelled from or that they had fled out of. They just go right back there. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, Serene Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, based on the timing of the events that have just taken place and the timing of the events that are about to take place, this long time that they refer to here is probably about two years. So they've come back, and that, the, the time on the first missionary journey took some time. Now they've returned to Antioch, Syrian Antioch. They report on everything, and they're there for about two years before the next event that takes place. So, the completion of that first missionary journey. Now, in Acts chapter 1, we saw that Jesus' continuing ministry in the earth was manifest in establishing the church. Right? Jesus establishes the church. In Acts chapter 2, we studied what the Lord did in pouring out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. At the end of Acts chapter 2, in verses 42 through 47, Following Peter's address to the crowd and 3,000 people accepting the Lord Jesus, we read that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So the church having been established, grew in these ways, and we saw all of that in Acts chapter 2. 
And so what we really were seeing there was that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit establishes the work of God in the earth. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit empowers us to be witnesses of the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit poured out, and I think there's a little bit of a trouble with the slide there, but it's, uh, it enables devotion to teaching, to fellowship, to communion, and to prayer. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit equips us to sacrificially care for others. So all of these ways in which the Holy Spirit is poured out, Holy Spirit is ministering, Holy Spirit is establishing, and so on. But the church that was established, really the local church, since it was only in Jerusalem at that time, the church that was established, the local church that was established in Acts 1 and 2, was strengthened by teaching, by fellowship, by participation in the Lord's Supper, the communion, and prayer. Right? These were the main things that were going on that helped this church to be strengthened. And God is adding to their number daily those that are being saved. Here in Acts chapter 14, as Paul and Barnabas work to strengthen the lo local churches that they have just helped establish, you can be sure that they emphasize the very same characteristics of teaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer. In Acts 14, 22 through 23, though, we see three additional characteristics of the life of a local church that are instructive for us. So, I want to look at those three characteristics as charges, as directives for us to follow, so that our local church and really any local church, and anybody who may be watching this later, and you're in another local church, it, every local church would be strengthened as we pay attention to these particular directives. All right? And so the first one is this. Remain true to the faith. As Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the disciples, they encouraged them to be remaining true to the faith. Remain true to the faith. So on Friday in our youth and young adult meeting, a question was raised about truth. And how can we know whether what we believe or what we practice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, what we believe or what we practice, how do we know that it is true? And in the youth meeting or in that session on Friday, we started the discussion. We started to talk about what truth is and what it means and why it's important and so on. But we're going to be exploring that more in our next meeting on March 5th. But the question about truth is relevant for all of us at all times. Because we always have to ask, what does it mean? What does truth mean? What does it mean for me to remain true to the faith? What does it mean for the disciples and for us to be encouraged to do so? How do we do that? What, what happens? And Paul and Barnabas would have appealed to the Word of God. Last week we were talking about the supremacy of the Word of God, that the Word of God has to be everything, has to be prime. It has to be what directs our thinking. So Paul and Barnabas would have appealed to the Word of God, to the truth of God in the Word, 
to exhort the believers to remain true to the faith. They would have taught them to resist the devil and false doctrine. They would have taught them to put away the old lifestyle, to put away the old man, to die to the old self, and to put on the new self. They would have taught them to pray and to give thanks always. They would have taught them to manage God's possessions as God's stewards. They would have taught them to speak words of grace and to build each other up. They would have taught them how to live and to move in God and to do all things in love as they reached out to the people around them. Loving God and loving people. They would have taught them all of these things. Paul and Barnabas would have exhorted, that is to strongly encourage, that is to admonish, that is to, to really compel the people, the disciples, in all the matters of life and godliness that the word of God gives us. The Bible says that the word of God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. There is no area of life. It doesn't matter whether we're living in 2021 or you're living in AD 10. Right? The Bible gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so Paul and Barnabas would have used this truth of God to be able to admonish, to exhort the people, the disciples. Right? Today, we can tend to shy away from exhortation from speaking God's truth because our culture is skeptical of any claim of absolute truth. When you say this is truth, this is God's truth, this is the word of truth, Jesus is truth, hmm, people don't want to hear that because we are in a time of relativism, pluralism, postmodernism, where people don't want to say there is an absolute truth. Because if there is an absolute truth, then you have to somehow respond to that absolute truth. But if truth is relative, it's, if it's true for you, but it's not true for me, if it's true for me and I can do whatever I want, then that's much easier, much more convenient, much more fitting or pleasing for me personally. Because then I don't have to worry about what is objective or absolute truth. I just define my own truth and I can do whatever I want. So it's very difficult these days to speak about truth claims because the culture around us does not want to receive absolute truth claims. And we may also be concerned that we can't you know, clearly articulate or defend our truth claims. We say, oh, this is what it is, and the other person challenges us. They say something, and we say, ah, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know what to say. And therefore, we don't we don't say it. We don't make the claim. We don't tell them about Jesus. And so what happens is the only way that we can start to do this, we can really make these truth claims, is that if we know the truth ourselves and if we are living by the truth. If we are living by the truth ourselves, if we are full of the truth ourselves, if we are in intimate relationship with truth personified Jesus and truth is overflowing out of us, then it is much easier to be able to say this is the claim, this is the statement, because it just overflows out of your mouth. What's in the heart will come. Right? So the way that 
this, this happens is what in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What's he saying? Live in such a way that the truth is evident. You have been called in this. You have an extraordinary claim that you're making. You have a challenge and a, and a, and a, and a responsibility as a child of God. Live according to that. Live worthy of that calling. When you live that way, your life speaks as a testimony to the people around you. You're not just saying words and then doing something else. You're living it out. And when you do that, when you're living it out that way, so, you know, just as Paul is doing, he says, look, I, I have lived as a prisoner for the Lord, literally and figuratively. I am a slave to Christ. I am a bondservant. I am, a, I am totally obedient to the Lord Jesus, what he wants me to do. Therefore, I can tell you this is what the truth of God is. So when he is a prisoner for the Lord, it gives him credibility to exhort people. So similarly today, when our hearers, when the people who listen to us know that we are truly committed people who are true to the faith, they will be more willing to listen to what we have to say. If they think we are hypocrites, they won't listen. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes or that we have to be perfect before you tell anybody about Jesus. The fear of messing up, of not living up to the truth, of being labeled as a hypocrite, cannot be the reason for why we don't speak the truth. Because God knew exactly what our shortcomings are and how we would fall, and he yet commissioned us to go into all the world and tell the people the good news about Jesus, the truth about Jesus. He didn't say, oh, yeah, you can go, you, uh, not so much. And he, and he didn't say, you know, wait till you get it. Wait till you're overflowing with truth. Wait till you're perfect. Then go into the world. He said, you go. And you go and tell them. Because the truth that you're sharing is not about you. You live it out. You set your testimony. You walk in the ways of the Lord. But this truth is greater than you. It is not about you. It's not about anything of this world. This is about a standard and about a God that is greater than anything else. And so when we come to that realization and we know that that's what God is doing to fulfill his word, then we say, okay, we are going and speaking and continuing to tell people to what is true no matter what. God's truth remains and stands separate from us no matter what. It's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. What's Paul saying? God is always true. Communicate his message. Tell people what God is saying. And that's it. We have that assurance. So, remain true to the faith. And speak the truth. And one of the most important things we have to truthfully say to new converts in particular, but anybody in general, is 
Be prepared for hardships. Isn't that a great message? Oh, we're so glad that you've accepted the Lord Jesus. We're so glad that you've come to our church. Just be ready. You're going to go through a hard time. Not a message that we want to say. And not a message that most churches are saying. We want to be able to say, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. They will. Come to Jesus and you'll be healed and delivered. Yeah, you will. Come to Jesus and life will be great. It will. But guess what? In the middle of all of that, you're going to have a lot of hardship. And if we don't say that, we have missed something. And so when these folks, when these apostles are strengthening, they're strengthening the local church. New believers. What do they say? Be prepared. Be prepared for hardships. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. They warned them about approaching hardship in a statement that implies that hardship is a necessary requirement along the path to the kingdom. Acts 14, 22, that verse there, it literally reads, through many tribulations, it is necessary for us to enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. And the word many there, it's not just a quantity, it's not just a number, it's the variety. It's many types of hardships. Right? You, you don't like this hardship? Just wait, you'll get another one. Right? Many varieties of hardships. The idea of variety in suffering, it's even more clearly expressed in James chapter 1, verse 2, which speaks of various kinds of trials. And the word for trials that's used there means trouble involving direct suffering. What a cheery message, right? Paul is saying that Christians will struggle with difficult hardships of various kinds. Hardship is a key ingredient of discipleship. And Paul teaches this in his letters in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28 through 30, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus mentions it in his basic call to discipleship. We looked at that in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. And here in Acts 14, 22, it's going further. It's saying, look, suffering is a condition for entrance into the kingdom of God. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and also you'll see this, this reference in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul's writing, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, and, and, and let me make this point. The type of, the variety of hardships that we may face, some hardships are because of a direct opposition or a direct result of doing something for God. You share the gospel, somebody opposes you, they stone you, they leave you for dead. There's a direct opposition to sharing the gospel. Some hardships are incurred in the way, meaning you have to travel to some destination as these apostles did, and there's a lot of hardship. There's hard travel. Some hardships are encountered just in terms of the circumstances of that journey or of life. There's a storm, there's ice, there's all sorts of stuff happening. You know, and you're, you know, there could be hardships of some kind, physical hardships that you have to endure. Some hardships may be because there is something else that is going on in the circumstances around you. The, the economy has, has been affected and you've been laid off from your job. There are hardships of different kinds. So it's not just where you say, I'm enduring a hardship because I did something for God. 
There could be, the point here is you could be encountering all sorts of hardships in life. The question there is, what do you do in the midst of that hardship? And many Christians, especially in the West, don't say much about suffering because they have not experienced much suffering themselves. You know, and there's some, I'm not saying there isn't. But the result of that is that when we should embrace suffering for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of Christ, we tend to avoid it at any cost. We say, oh, no, no, no. If it's a suffering, then it can't be from God. And we try to avoid it. When suffering does come then, we are unprepared. We don't know how to handle it. And we may leave the church or even leave the faith. The cross of suffering is something that we take on through obedience or something that we can avoid if we wish. You can actually avoid it. Just stay away from all those kind of circumstances. But when we suffer, in whatever ways it may be, when we suffer, we are forced to thrust ourselves upon God in earnest desire for his help. And that has a way of strengthening our faith and purifying our motives. When we suffer, we turn to the Lord. We don't rely on ourselves. We know we can't handle this. There's too much. And we turn to him and we say, Oh God, cry out to you for mercy. And in doing so, we are strengthened and our motives are purified. Why are we doing this? Why are we in the middle of this? So let me make this additional point about suffering. Suffering for Christ particularly, but just suffering in general. A common reaction of Christians when they see a fellow Christian suffer is to look for something wrong that the sufferer has done. You must have done something wrong. Job's friend said to him, you must have sinned. That's why you're suffering. And so we think that people are suffering because they've done something that is not in keeping with God's will. And we may even rebuke the sufferer. Now, Sometimes, we may indeed be suffering because of our foolishness. We didn't rely on God. We didn't obey on what God told us to do. We end up in some mess. Right? The clear direction was don't go on that path, whatever. We did. We ended up in the ditch. Okay, there's some foolishness that, we may have, that may have led to some situation. And so, sometimes, the rebuke or the correction helps us to see that. And it can sober us up and force us to ask ourselves and others whether what we're doing is the right thing. We can come back to God and say, God, am I in the right path? Am I suffering because I, I actually was in disobedience? We can do that. But sometimes, many times, when we should be encouraging those who are suffering, we end up discouraging them and causing more pain. So we need to be people who are led by the Lord to speak the truth in godly love, with godly discernment, with godly discretion, knowing when to speak and when not to speak, with godly timing, and with godly wisdom. Then we can say to somebody, okay, I'm, I'm there with you. You know, and as you're going through this, I'm with you. Let me tell you and stand with you and pray with you. and Be prepared for hardships. But in the midst of all those hardships, let's press on. I'm with you. And then the third directive for the local church that Paul and Barnabas bring to the, these churches that they've established 
So they say, be, remain true to the faith, right? be prepared for hardships, and then appoint and pray for leaders. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The word elder has already been used in the Old Testament. And, you know, Israel, even in the New Testament times in that first century, the word elder would have been used. And so you can understand what the word elder here is by looking at what was common amongst the Jewish people or what is common or understood from the Old Testament. Old Testament elders had the responsibility of judging and disciplining and of doing things in general with the people, but also of ruling and having authority and guiding the people in an orderly way. In the New Testament, the same people who are called elders are also called bishops. Episcopus, Episcopalian, you know, you have these words. But they're called bishops. And the two names are used interchangeably in Acts 20 and in Titus 1 and so on. And so when the word elder, or while the word elder points to the seniority or the, the, the person in themselves, the word bishop, meaning overseer, points to the role, what they're doing, how they're functioning. And we're going to look at this word elder again when we get into Acts chapter 20. There's a longer portion there where Paul is speaking to the elders, addressing them directly, and we'll get into that when we're there. But this process, so here elders or leaders, they're in these positions, they're there, and so on. But the process of appointing leaders was accompanied by prayer. That's what we see here in verse 23, and we see this in multiple instances in what we've already seen in the book of Acts. On two occasions, the prayer was accompanied by fasting. That was in chapter 13, verses 2 to 3, and in chapter 14, verse 23. There was prayer, we saw this, there's prayer for guidance in the choice of leaders. In chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. When God spoke about the mission, the missionary call and so on, and the leaders were to be sent out, there was a time of prayer in which God spoke to these people. That was in chapter 10 and chapter 13. And then also we see the reference in chapter 9. And then when the missionaries are commissioned and sent out, there's a time of prayer and fasting. And they were praying for the commissioning or sending out of the missionaries. Chapter 6, chapter 13, chapter 14, we saw all of these references. So as a church, as a church and local church, if we're thinking about leadership in any kind, We can't just assume leadership. We have to be praying for it. We have to be saying, Lord God, you send the right people, you raise up the right people. So as a church, we have to be praying for the right leaders to be raised up from within the church and added in from without at every level and for every endeavor. Whatever the Lord is leading us to, to put our hands to, to say, this is what I want you to pay attention to, then we've got to pray that the leadership will be there, that the elders will be there, that the way that we can move forward will be there. And remember what we've already learned in terms of spiritual formation, of maturing as disciples of Christ. Every believer is both a follower and a leader. So we're not talking about an elite few. 
This is not, you know, as we were talking about even with the word of God, it's not for the, for the clergy and the laity. It's not, there's no separation that way. All of us are called to be both followers and leaders. And in different contexts, God will use us in different ways. And he'll gift us in different giftings so that together we can complement one another and build up the church. So here at New Life, God has been answering our prayers for leaders and for the right people at the right time. Worship leader, other positions, other things, we're praying. But we're not done. We need many more. Even as the Lord leads many more people, when he adds many more daily to the church that who are being saved, when the people would come, we need many more to step into positions of leadership, to take responsibility to be going after these things. And so we want to pray that the Lord will bring those together who are called into those kind of things. Right? And by the way, again, like I said, this is not just about whether you're up front, whether you're visible, whether somebody hears you. You may be doing something in the side somewhere. But there is a leadership con context to that. There is a call. There is a responsibility. There is something you are doing. And we have a number of ministries that we are involved in right now. But there are a number of things that we have been doing that we want to resume, like the food ministry. Or there may be new things that we want to put our hands to. And we want to see the Lord leading and guiding and directing us into that with strength. That can happen only as we pray for leaders to be raised up. Right? We need to pray for that. For me personally, I, and, I, and I'll get to this when we talk about the next section too, but for me personally, I, my calling or my gifting and the way that I tend to be the most sort of, you know, doing the most is in this kind of thing, teaching, is to be able to speak like this. I'm not as good with going out on the street of meeting perfect strangers and just doing street evangelism or doing things like that. Michael was talking to me about doing some things in the park and having, you know, outdoor stuff and, you know, doing some music and attract a crowd and, you know, and I was like, oh, great, I'm glad that you're thinking of that and that you'll do that because, I mean, that's not, that's not the first thing that I think about, right? So we all have to come together in the ways that we have these different calls and giftings and so on and then we're in different seasons of life. So we may have been very active in the ministry, but now with little babies and everything else, that's not so possible. So then we have to say, all right, God, we're going to keep praying. We're going to keep praying for people to be stepping up and raised up and so on. And I've mentioned this before. There's a network of churches in the area that's doing all sorts of stuff. And I'm getting these emails and saying, is there somebody in your church that could represent your church as we want to do this thing as ministry to the poor? There's ideas about doing some mental health kind of things that we would provide or do some. There are all sorts of opportunities and possibilities. Let's pray. Let's pray that the Lord would raise up the folks and do these things and move for us in this way to strengthen our local church. But in all of these things that I'm describing and praying for this, in addition to praying for the raising up or appointment of leaders, there are multiple references in the book of Acts of praying for leaders, the ones that are there. In eight of his letters, Paul directly asks his readers to pray for him. And in others, he's referring to that in general, but he's asking directly. And as we learned in Luke, 
Before Jesus chose his 12 apostles, he spent the whole night in prayer for them. That was in Luke 6, verse 12. The only time the Gospels refer to him speaking about his own prayer life, it was about his prayer for Peter. He says, I have prayed for you, Peter. I have prayed for you. And in Luke 22, we read that. Paul says that he prayed night and day for young Timothy. That's in First or Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. In other words, not only should Christian leaders be appointed with prayer, be commissioned with prayer, and be people of prayer themselves, the church has to be praying for those people regularly. The Christian leaders, the leaders in the local church, need to be people who are prayed for. Prayer must back their commissioning and their ministry. Not just, oh, we prayed, we prayed, we got somebody great. All the best, do well. No, 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 no. You've got to be praying, praying, praying for these leaders. Praying for us. Praying for the people. So that we are standing before the Lord with the integrity that we need. We're consistent in what we need to do. We're paying attention to the things of the Lord. So this morning when I talk about strengthening the local church, I'm saying to you that just as Paul and Barnabas did in going through these churches that they had established and saying these things to them, we have to be committed to saying we want to pray for and work towards the strengthening of our local church by in engaging actively in teaching, in fellowship, in communion, in prayer, and in encouraging one another, in exhorting one another to remain true to the faith, in enduring hardships together, in helping one another, in sharing when we need to, but helping one another to go through that hardship and that hard, difficult time. And we want to appoint and pray for leaders. We want to commission, pray to commission, and pray for the leaders as they are in those positions. We want to do that as a church. This is the call, this is the challenge, this is what I'm saying. Which means that we have to be committed to that. You can't be a participant by just being a spectator. Right? I, and look, I, again, there are plenty of folks that are going to show up who will just do that. They will just be spectating. Maybe at least for a while, maybe for all the time. We don't have to require something of somebody to demand oh, you know. no no if that's what they're doing that's fine let them listen to the word of God let them go on but if you are saying hey this is my church this is the place that the Lord has brought me to this is the place that I want to fellowship with these people and contribute to the growth of these people and, con and for them to contribute to my growth then let's go after it in these ways commit to these things to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the communion, to the prayer, to the reigning true in faith, to exhortation, to praying for one another, for enduring hardships together, and for praying for the leaders. Which brings me to this point of application. And it sounds totally selfish. Because the point of application is this. Pray, pray, pray for the leaders. I'm asking you in every direct way that I can, pray for me. Pray. You know, when you're, we get together on Wednesday evenings and we pray for people by name, and my name, Jizzy's name, and our boys' names are on that list. And I am so thrilled 
I just, I'm so refreshed in spirit when people just pray for us. It's wonderful. But I encourage you, I want to challenge you, I want to make this request. Don't just pray for us on a Wednesday night. Don't just pray for us once in a month. Or, you know, don't just pray for us once in a year. Don't just pray because you heard this message. Pray regularly. Pray without ceasing. Pray. Pray. There's so much that I'm in need of prayer for. To stay close to the Lord. To be listening to the Lord. It's not about what I do. It's about who I am in Christ Jesus. Pray for that. And for each one of the folks that are here, that are in any kind of position of leadership, that are doing something, that are stepping into that. As Gigi is coordinating a number of things and leading stuff and so on, pray for her. Pray for her. Pray for Pastor Art and pray for Carolyn as they lead the school and the daycare. Pray for Janet and, and Bridget as they're directing the school and the daycare there. Pray for the people that are leading different things, the teachers and staff and so on. Pray for Micah as the worship leader and pray for his family because nothing happens just in isolation. The whole family is impacted. Everybody is affected. And all the demands that are placed on the person affect everybody else in the family too, especially if you have young children and so on. So pray for all of that. Pray for the board members. Pray for Coy and Daryl. Pray for, for Mike and Lee. Pray for John. John. <laughs> pray, pray for every single person who's in the board and who's actively engaged in saying, how do we administer and, and move forward with the church? Pray for those who have taken anything at all that have been involved in ministry before and will be involved in the future. Pray. Pray for the leaders. Pray and say, Lord God, most importantly, let every one of these people be close to you. Not let them all do the best. Let them be, you know, let them be very active. Let them work 60 hours a week for the sake of the church. That's not your prayer. If they do all of that, great, fine. But that's not your prayer. Your prayer really needs to be, God, let them be close to you. Oh, let them hear from you. Let them be intimate with you. Let them not get so busy with ministry that they forget their relationship with you. It happens to the, to the most prominent people of God that they can fall away. We need prayer. We need prayer. We need to be kept in the hand of God. We need to be close to the heart of God. We need to be constantly hearing His heartbeat so that if we're resting in his bosom and hearing his heartbeat and his whisper in our ears, then we can be obedient to him. If that's not happening, we will go our own way. We will tend to stray. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Oh, Lord God, I need you. So pray, pray, pray. Your point of application this week is this. Pray for the leaders of the church. Pray. And if it's not this, if it's not, I mean, and it's not just for this week. It's for the rest of this month. It's for the rest of this year. It's for the rest of your days. Pray. As we do this, as we apply in these ways, I'm convinced, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that the Lord will strengthen our local church. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, you have called us to such a wonderful glorious life to be joined in fellowship with you and to be joined in fellowship with each other. You have called us, Lord, to be in community in a local church. We are not isolated. We have not been set apart by ourselves. 
We, have called, we are called to be part of a body. And I thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one that strengthens this body. You are the one that gives us health and life and vitality. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us, Lord, to grow stronger and stronger. From strength to strength. Glory to glory. From faith to faith. Rising up on eagles' wings, walking and not fainting or growing weary, running and Lord not growing weary, just being able to persevere in this race that is set before us. And Father, even as we, Lord, even as we commit to the teaching, to the fellowship, Lord, to the Lord, to the communion, to the participation in the Lord's Supper that brings us together as a body and even as we commit Lord for all of these ways in Lord that you are doing and you are working in our lives Father we want to encourage one another we want to exhort and speak the truth to one another we want to remain true in the faith Lord, we want to endure every hardship, physical, mental, financial, Lord, opposition that comes, uh, the demonic, uh, whatever it may be, every hardship that comes, we want to endure it together. We want to strengthen each other. We want to stand with each other. And Lord, we are praying for all of this. We are praying for leadership. We're praying for the leaders that are there. We're praying, Lord, that we will remain true to you and we will continue in your ways. Oh, Jesus, build up your church. We commit ourselves to you. We pray for every local church that is represented, Lord, even through us here and for those who may be listening to this message. Father, we pray that you will be building each one of these local churches all over the world, not because they have the biggest sanctuaries and the buildings and resources, not because they have great programs, not because, Lord, there's some flashy thing that's happening, that's on the outside. But no, Lord, that there will be a core, a strength, a, a Lord, a foundation, a structure that is all made possible by the Lord himself. Jesus, every local church built up in that way. Oh, Jesus, we praise you. Every, every house church, every little group that's meeting, Lord God, let this be true, that we would be built up as the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you are good to us. We commit ourselves into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.